Hey, I'm Lou Burney, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and this week we have another full slate of writers for you across a very wide spectrum of genres. We start with David Swinson. He's the author of the Frank Marr series of police thrillers, and his new book takes a very different turn. City on the Edge is a coming-of-age story set in Beirut in the 1970s and takes inspiration from David's own life when he lived there with his foreign diplomat father and his family. This is a real departure for David, uh, but it's a really good book that I enjoyed thoroughly. And when I spoke to David, we started by talking about what else was on the agenda for that day. <laughs> wait, wait. After you're done with this interview, you have to go buy a plunger? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't needed one of those in years, but now, now sort of I do. The, the writer's life is uh, not as exciting <laughs> as I was told. All right. Well, let's talk about your new book. I really loved City on the Edge, but I couldn't exactly tell you why. It was <laughs> it was strangely compelling in a way. I mean, it's not a heavily plot-driven book, but it was so filled with atmosphere and great characters that I just found myself totally enthralled and, and couldn't wait to get back to it each time. Is that, uh, I mean, do you take that as a compliment or is that a backhanded insult? No, I take it as a compliment. I mean, um, I do think there was, there's, there's a bit of, there's a plot. I mean, obviously the, the mystery behind it and all that. Yeah. But it's, it's not, it's kind of thing like you read like, Oh, it's, you know, it takes place in the middle East and there's uh, you know, espionage and intrigue and yeah. uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not a CIA thriller. No, it's, it was, not meant to be, and there's been a lot of comparisons like um, a coming-of-age, like spy thriller type thing, and it's not at all like that. It's just a simple coming-of-age mystery thing, sort of like Stephen King's The Body. That's really was was my influence. Well, I'm sure you're going to be getting a ton of questions as you talk about this book with people about how much of this is taken from your real life, since it's clearly inspired by some of your own experiences as a boy. I mean, you lived in Beirut as a young child. Yeah, uh, my my father was foreign service, I think. <laughs> and I did grow up in Beirut uh, for about three years, and we were evacuated in uh, I believe 74 when the, the real trouble began. So a lot of the experiences... Are, are really based on my experiences. I did witness the Israeli, I think the mirages, that's what they were, bombing Palestinian camps and shootings. And, you know, and I did break curfew, you know, because my parents were never really around. So we just had a nanny and that, that all is really based on experience and true, but I, I never witnessed a murder. Well, that's good, I guess. <laughs> a lot of semi-autobiographical semi stuff in it, but the, the family's fiction. Um, so it is primarily fiction based on experience. So your uh, sort of typical kid stuff sneaking out after dark uh, was a little bit different from my experience. Yours was, it was maybe a little more dangerous. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was. I'm surprised I survived because um, it, it, it was dangerous. There were snipers, there were you know all kinds. So we, we did have to sleep on the floor a lot. You know, now we have COVID, you know, kids, you know, like have virtual school you know back then we had the curfews and no school you know but the, the the sad thing is is now i look back at it and you speak of it as an adventure some kid is having but people were dying right you know now looking back at it it was a real tragedy but i wanted to maintain more of the the naivete the, the innocence of a, of a kid and making it an, an adventure 
When you look back at experiences like that, do you think you almost need the distance of now, you know, 40, almost 50 years? Uh, uh, hey, hey, yeah, watch it with that, the years. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, <laughs> hey, look, I, I was alive. I was around. <laughs> we all have to deal with it. But um, you do. I mean, this is a book, much like a lot of the books we've always wanted to write. I wanted to write this for 20 years, you know, and I actually did do a first draft before I became a cop and it sucked. It was terrible, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and I think it took a lot more life experience, you know, becoming a cop and being able to be more reflective and looking back. And, and I think age. Yeah, so I think you're right, definitely. Well, uh, was there something, some spark that made you think, okay, yeah, now is the time, you know, because you had to step away from a a series that was ongoing and and to really dig into something that's been living with you that long, there has to be some sort of point where you say, okay, now this is it, now is the right time to write this. Yeah, yeah, I felt that it was the right time, you know, because I was reliving a lot, I mean, in, in my mind about, you know, Beirut looking at pictures and boxes of stuff. And I just felt that I was emotionally distanced enough that I could create a fictional character reflecting back instead of having it so personal. I think that was my problem before was I made it very personal. And, you know, that can be a little bit, you know, you know, ah, you know yeah. like, that's just a little bit much, you know. Well, I, I mean, it sounds like it was a, just a, it ended up being a very different process from your other books. I mean, which also you pull from your own life experience, you know, of, of being a cop. But this was a, a completely different life in a way, right? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't anything that I wanted to break away from, like, you know, here, let me try to do something serious or do something, you know, that to break away from Frank Marr or something like that. Cause I really haven't broken away from Frank Marr. I mean, he's going to come back in one form or another, you know, so it wasn't anything like that. It was just that I wanted to write it real bad. you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, the settings in this book, they're dangerous and, and they're scary, you know, for a boy his age. I mean, but at some point you also, I mean, you have to have some sort of real affection for Beirut when you look back on it to be able to write a story like this. I mean, there's definitely, there were, there was something that you loved about the city in your time there, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, we lived all over the world. and I mean, Beirut is the the place I go back to most often is in my mind. I mean, uh, prior to the conflict, I mean, we were snorkeling along the reefs in the Mediterranean and, you know, we were kids in shorts with no shoes and no shirt, you know, just walking across the corniche and hopping the, the sidewall and climbing down and wandering around reefs and the, the fishermen. I mean, no one tried to kidnap us. No one tried to, you know, molest us. No one, I mean, they were all, you know, really good people. And But then you had, you know, you know Muslims and, and the very conservative Christians, the Druze and, you know, things like that. And everyone mingled and, you know, they didn't, there, there was really no conflict at that point. Well, and, uh, you know, obviously we can't call it good timing, but the Middle East back in the news again right now, as it it seems to happen just in this cycle since, since we were kids. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a region that's uh, rife with stories that we don't often hear, I think, from especially from someone from your perspective. 
So it, it, it was interesting to me because my only window into that world is through news reports and is it's, it's a, a region and a city of violence and conflict. So it was, it was fascinating for me to read about, you know, what it was like to sort of be on the ground and, and living that young boy's life there. And trying that life, that life trying to be normal. Right. For that kid, you know, um, and in a way it was his normal life. I mean, the curfew was part of, what, what what was happening, you know, part of the adventure. Well, I mean, do you think that there are other parts of your past? Like you say, you lived all over the world. I mean, is there a Mexico City story uh, that you want to tell? Is there a Stockholm, right? <laughs> I don't know if I want to go that far, you know, because I, you know, realistically, you know, I mean, if you use the same kid character, it's like Tintin or something, you know. But, <laughs> uh, the thing about City on the Edge is it's, it's re- realistic, I think. And but if you put him in situations where he finds trouble or finds death or finds things like that in Mexico and Stockholm and Mallorca and places like that, then it becomes something different. But using the cities? Yeah, heck yeah. I mean, for something else, maybe. I love the Mexico City. That was another huge part of my life. There you go. Send Frank Moore on vacation. <laughs> yeah, I have him get into some. But now it's different. You have all the cartels. Back yeah, then, yeah. again... I could run around freely, you know, in my shorts and like, like in Beirut, you know, and my sandals and, you know, my best friend, Alfredo, you know, we, you know, terrorize the villages around there, you know, and, you know, I mean, it's just a lot different now. Yeah. Well, I, again, I, I, I really, really love this book and uh, I've, I've, I wish I could pinpoint why. And I've been trying to, to like tell other <laughs> people, like as, as it gets closer to the release date, I, 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 it's one of those books that you say, just trust me, read it. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. So usually we wait to have the horror writers on our Halloween episode, but when I got a chance to talk to our next author, I did not want to wait. Josh Mallerman is the author of the smash hit Bird Box and its sequel Mallory, which is just out in paperback. He's written many truly chilling horror novels, and his latest is called Goblin, and it is a novel in novellas. So it's a series of linked stories all taking place in the fictional town of Goblin. The story has a long and interesting road to publication, which we will hear about, but we started by both admiring each other's office spaces and chatting about his time playing music with his band, The High Strung, and what turned out to be our very similar guitar collections. How you doing? Good. Your office space looks amazing. Uh, well, this is my uh, half-converted garage where my wife sticks me in all my junk, so she doesn't oh, wow. the rest of the house. <laughs> Exciting junk. Yeah, well, I was uh, I was half expecting. I, I wasn't sure if you were going to be like me and uh, have a whole slew of guitars that that you can't see. But I'm assuming you have a giant collection somewhere in the house. Yeah, there's like three or four, or five, maybe more actually in the other room. Yeah, you, you stick them all in one space to. Uh... You know what? No, it's funny that you say that. Look, here's one. Nice. Oh, uh, that's a Martin. Yeah. Wow. That was a quick eye, dude. I barely showed that and you knew that. Come on. Look at this right here. Holy cow. You have the same model even? This is my most recent acquisition. I finally decided after 30 years, I needed a decent no, I know. acoustic. Same, man. Because even forever, I was just like, oh, what's the difference? I'm just writing a song. And then I picked this up in the store and I was like, holy shit, this is a different world. But yeah, it's funny. I, I'm 45. I don't know how old you are, but, yeah, it, but a little, struck me. little older. <laughs> okay, but it struck me. It was like the same realization. Like, just get the good one already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
All right. Well, this is a whole different show. So we're going to let's let's talk about books. What do you say? <laughs> Sounds good. OK. Uh, all right. Well, Josh, thanks for uh, for joining me on Writer Types. Uh, and first off, I was surprised to learn Goblin. Uh, it's a brand new hardcover book, but these are not new stories, right? This is got it's it's uh, it's new, but it's old. Yeah, I have a really exciting history with Goblin because Goblin is the book that back when I had written nine or so books uh, and I wasn't looking for an agent or a publishing house or anything, I was just writing. A friend of mine from high school called and told me that he knew a lawyer that represents authors and that I want to send him, you know, a book, whatever. Foolishly, insanely, I look at, I look at my stack of, of nine books at the time. I didn't know anything about anything. And I was like, well, that one has six stories. So if he doesn't like the first story, maybe he'll like the second story. Uh-huh. And if he doesn't like the second, but, but like, no, actually selling Nevada collections is actually a lot harder than selling a book. And I had <laughs> Bird Box in that stack also. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to send him Goblin. And the lawyer loved it. And it led to meeting a manager and the agent and getting Bird Box assigned and all that. Uh-huh. Um, and then... Goblin came out in a limited edition in, I think, 17 or 18, 2018, where it was a thousand copies of it made. And I was thrilled. You know, that was that seemed like the end of it for me. I was thrilled about it. Yeah. And then Del Rey asked about doing a wider release. I was like, oh, my God, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, so it's a novel in novellas. Uh, and the, the link is that they're all uh, linked to this town named Goblin. I mean, I, of course, the obvious question is, did, you know, did it start that way? Or did you start to notice like, oh, I can link these through this common thread? Or, or was it always planned to be a part of a collection? So I had a, I started with the city and I had a layout. I had a sense of it. Um, but it really wasn't until like the actual and this may sound a little superficial, but it wasn't until the actual name of the city arrived. Because at first I was calling it like Rolling Hills, which is almost embarrassing in hindsight. Like, <laughs> imagine it's not Rolling Hills. Like that's a real, real scary city, Josh. And um, but you know how rough drafts go. Um, but once that name clicked and I had it, I understood that I had like the main character of the book, meaning. Any other story can take place inside a goblin and the main character is present. And right. that that opened doors for me, that liberated everything. It didn't, it no longer felt like just a collection or a collection of shorter stories or novellas, whatever. It suddenly felt like every story is about goblin. Short stories were definitely my intro into horror and I, I think it suits the genre so well I, was that where you sort of found horror fiction for the first time in shorts yeah I mean I, I god where is that book I have a book I think it's called American Supernatural Tales there it is actually yeah oh, I can, yeah. Actually, it's right there on the shelf that's really weird where I remember um I was reading this collection and it was in chronological order. And I had a side notebook where with each story I read, I wrote like an idea. Like it, it wouldn't even be an idea like that story, but there would be like a line or two in the story that sparked a whole other idea, whatever. Yeah. And so, yes, one, one of my first um, floodgate moments was from reading like shorts and that kind of thing. And I think that, like you just said, it's a real natural place for horror because the minute you try and start explaining too much, obviously we start to lose what, you know, not just our imagination about it, but like we start to lose the mood yeah. and it's hard to maintain the mood for the duration of a novel. Now, a, a book like Bird Box, which is a shorter, well, yeah, it's like 280 pages, whatever, a shorter novel. Okay. You could pull that off, but with yeah. like a thousand page or typically 
there are like scenes or segments or whole swings where it's not scary. Yeah. It's just like world building or this or this is this is this happening. But in the short, you can do it. And but the novella, there's the range where yes, I believe I can keep this mood or this atmosphere without, you know, without straining. Yeah. While also giving a rich character like history and a, and a full arc of a character. So yeah. the novella starts to become a real sweet spot for horror authors. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, as a former musician myself, I, I love to talk to authors who are also musicians. So we're gonna quickly veer away from books. <laughs> so you've been playing with the high strong for a long time now. And I mean, that downtime of touring, I, that turned out to be a great space for writing for you, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was a breakthrough moment. We had been um, on the road for, I think it was, and you'll relate to how insane this is, I think it was seven months straight with 11 days off, meaning Ooh, wow. all, the all the rest were shows. But we were also like 28, 29, and you know, it's kind of funny because that sounds like older for rock and roll. It but does, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm really young right now. We were like 28, 29, and I mean, we were having the time of our lives, getting paid in booze half the time, meeting people. But, but a member of our band left, um, the other songwriter, who is now back in the band, and him and I are like, I mean, artistic soulmates. But he did, he left for a while. And, and when he first left, that left us with a few months open suddenly of like, what do we do? And in those three months, I, I had tried to write novels before and I never finished one. In those three months, I finished my first one. Oh. That was, I'm sure that you've either written stuff or played stuff that where you're like, those those peak moments as a musician or as an artist. Yeah. And that first breakthrough novel was as, as good an artistic feeling as it gets, man. So yeah, yeah, it did come from like a taking a breath from the road. Yeah. Now I've, I will always contend that some of the best lines I've ever written were in some song lyrics that I wrote, you know, when I was 20. Have you ever stolen a line from a song for a book or vice versa? Like come up with something in the book that maybe doesn't fit and you're like, oh, well, I can just turn this into a song. Well, for a, for a long time after that first book was written, for a long time, if it was a small idea, like a short story, it became a song. Yeah. And if it was a long idea, it became a novel. So by the time Bird Box came out, I literally, I did not have one short story on me. I had like, <laughs> like you a couple hundred songs. And like when Bird Box came out, like 14 novels, no short stories. A lot, I feel like a lot of um, horror authors or genre authors will have like hundreds of short stories, you know? Um, I have like 30 or something like that. I almost look at it like it's the weakest part of my game, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because it's like the newest to me still. Whereas like the novel, I am in for the long haul. Let's go. The novella, I feel really good about songs. I feel great about the short story, man. The short horror story. Like we're talking 10 to 20 page kind of like short yeah, story. Yeah. yeah. That is a work of art that I, I want to not master, but you know, everyone, every horror author dreams of writing like the monkey's paw. You know, right. <laughs> I'll tell hard like that one that makes it into the like annals of the classic horror story. Yeah. Well, yeah. you just you need to uh, have somebody quit the band again. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to go start a fight for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the paperback of uh, Mallory is also just out. Uh, this is the, the sequel to Bird Box, of course. I mean, was, would you have any notion of a sequel to Bird Box with, among all these other things? Or what, I, I can imagine it's the kind of thing like once Bird Box starts to take off and now you're talking about a film adaptation and stuff, these characters now all of a sudden they, they won't leave your head and make room for anybody else. So a, a, a sequel maybe flowed a little more naturally. Yeah, I mean, there's. I would be like out of my mind if I if I didn't if I said that the movie, um, seeing Sandra Bullock as Mallory and the success of the movie, if I said that that didn't play a part in doing a sequel, but I, you know, my agent had been on me for a while before then about doing one, and I had an idea for one, an idea that I actually kind of scrapped once I started, but I had an idea for one and I'd considered it, but I mean, there were so many other ideas, and there are. Yeah. But then, you know, I'm with Allison, who is my um, lady, and we're in the, um, uh, you know, screening room at Netflix, and, and we see Sandra Bullock as Mallory with blindfolded on the river. By the end of it, it was just like, oh, my God, like, yeah, I kind of want to write this again. The thing <laughs> is, Mallory herself has always been, and I don't know exactly why, but she's always been the easiest character I ever wrote. There's oh. just, when I sit down with her, it takes no work. I just know her inside out. There are a million other ideas, but I, but she, when she's in the room, she like takes center stage for me. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, as a dad, I'm a little upset with you because uh, I've, I made the mistake of showing my kids Bird Box because they really wanted to see it. Everyone was talking about it and I was like, oh, sure, we'll watch this. I, it was one of the few films that I had not pre-screened for oh. them. If, if you collect these sort of stories, my daughter, who's now 14, I think she was 13 when we watched it. It is, hands down, she will name it as the scariest thing she's ever seen. Oh, that's great. No, I'm, I'm starting to like, look, I'm like writing it down. Yeah. Scariest thing she's ever seen. Yeah, and, no, that's uh, awesome. And, and I've, I, I wish I could grab a copy of Goblin or Mallory off my shelves behind me here. But the minute they came in the door, she took them from me and stole them <laughs> into her room. So she's reading them right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is Awesome. All right. Well, Josh, this has been fantastic. I, I love, we usually save uh, talking to horror writers for our Halloween episode, but I, I'm, I'm glad we got to do this uh, right when the weather is nice and the, <laughs> the sun is shining. And it's just, just starting over here. Like it's just starting to get nice here and I got vaccinated. And also, I'm, and I've heard a lot of people are doing this. Um, I had eye exam, dentist appointment, physical, uh, skin exam. Just, just like, like, I feel like I'm coming out of a cocoon. Shifting gears again, we go now to Joni Elliott, author of a humorous mystery book, The Audacity of Sarah Grayson, in which a world-famous mystery writer dies and leaves the completion of her beloved series to her daughter, who has no interest in writing a mystery novel and does not think she can do it. Hilarity ensues and secrets are revealed. Well, Joni, thanks uh, for joining me today on Writer Types. Uh, and I wanted to talk to you because I don't have very many humorous authors on the show. And uh, what we have here in The Audacity of Sarah Grayson, uh, it, it's not exactly a mystery, but I think it, there, there's enough elements in there that, that you okay. qualify to be on, uh, on, on this crime and mystery show because secrets are revealed. And right. uh, I think really that's kind of the plot of every story when you boil it down to its basics, right? I, I think all the best stories have some secrets in them, I think. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I've been told uh, over the years that, that my books are, are funny, but in a very, very dark 
way and and not intentionally so i don't set out to write you know stuff that's that's funny but when you set out to write something funny do you think do you start with sort of the setup of of the scenario or does the comedy sort of grow more out of the character like you you're coming up with a character that you think the humor will rise out of any situation you put her into i'll tell you for me the funny grows organically i mean i'm an outliner and so i i start often with the character and, and a situation, and she is in this, um, to tell you a little bit about the, the plot here, we're starting with uh, two central questions. What happens when the world's greatest literary icon dies? And she leaves an unfinished book. Uh, the final book in her best-selling series is unfinished. And she leaves that final book in the hands of her unstable neurotic daughter who does not believe that she is a real writer. And so this daughter, Sarah Grayson, is horrified that her mother would put her in this situation. And, and so Sarah is uh, recently divorced. Her husband walked out on her. She lives alone with her dog, Gatsby. Um, she writes greeting cards and coupon writing while she teaches. She hates teaching. She's teaching freshman English at the University of Maryland, which is actually something I was doing. I loved it, but Sarah's terrible at it. <laughs> and, uh, and so she's in this kind of terrible situation. She's angry that her mother would put her in this, even though her mother actually believes she can do it. And so I have this situation that I think is kind of horrifying and creates, there's humor that's going to happen there when you've got someone who is, <laughs> whose biggest win was resetting the microwave clock, finding matching shoes. Right. And she's expected to do this really impossible sort of thing. Um, and then she's stepping into her mother's shoes. And that's when she's starting to stumble on family secrets. Um, and that's where a lot of this mystery begins, where she's finding things out that don't make sense about her parents, don't make sense about her father who died when she was young. And that's where this thread of mystery comes in. Because she is this funny character to begin with, and she sees the world in such an interesting, funny way, the humor grows organically out of that, even though I will tell you, I'm an outliner, I, but I, I tell you, I can't exactly plan the funny. The funny just grows out of me putting her in those situations and starting to, to write them. So the funny right. definitely just comes along with me as I start to write the prose. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, if anyone digs that deep into their own family history, secrets are going to come out, right? There's a lot I, I don't know about my parents and probably don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so true. And here's what's funny is I was thinking, you know, my family's kind of boring. I don't really have, don't really have that many family secrets. And then I started to think about it. And I was thinking about the kinds of secrets that are the secrets that you've decided to keep. Mm-hmm. And then the kinds of secrets that are just the stuff you don't talk about. Uh-huh. And I think every family has the stuff that you just kind of don't talk about or you don't yeah. mention. And, and there's stuff in, on my mom's side that, you know, I've, I've went to a religion where they're big on family history and writing your family history. And man, I wish they would write some of the nitty gritty good stuff. <laughs> We're writing these family histories that don't have, we need those. I think we need the, the dark stuff coming yeah. out. I think, I think that's, <laughs> we need more of our shadow sides. We're, we're writing too much of the, the happy light side. Yeah. I think more of our shadow side. Well, like you mentioned, Sarah Grayson has to take on her her famous mother's long running and very successful mystery series. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you're going to get a ton of questions about this, but we have mm-hmm. to know: it was there any famous mystery writer who was the inspiration for Cassandra? You know, there there wasn't, but I studied a lot of different. She's kind of a hybrid. 
I studied a lot of different thriller writers, suspense writers for some inspiration. I even took some master classes on masterclass.com from some different thriller writers like oh, Dan wow. Brown and James Patterson and just to get a feel for them. And and so, so Sarah Grayson's mother is this writer. Her name is Cassandra Bond. The books that she's famous for, they're called the Ellery Dawson series. I had to sketch those out. You yeah. know, this last book is called book number five. And in order to make this work, I had to sketch out the whole plot line for books one, two, three, four, five. And I'm not a thriller writer, <laughs> but I had to know, I had to know how all of these books work. So I basically was writing outlines for a whole thriller series that my, my husband's like, you got to write, you got to write that someday. Yeah. You know, you really do. And I'm like, oh man, I do not know if I have the chops to write. I've never, you know, tried any of that before. Oh, now where have we heard that before? I know, <laughs> I know. It's just like Sarah. I know, exactly. That's what it feels like. It's like, no, you should really do it. And I'm like, I don't think I can do that. But I write more book club fiction and this is kind of my my, my cup of tea. But it, I thought, I think it would be fun to, to, to try and throw myself into that. But it was interesting putting myself in that world because I did actually need to write full outlines. Not full, not, not like the full thing, but yeah. I needed to sketch out what that would be and what Sarah Grayson the questions that she's needing to ask herself about book number five and what she needs to do if she was if she's going to write that thriller. So, and I yeah. love the Ellery Dawson character. I would actually, if I if I don't write it, I would love to have somebody write the Ellery Dawson books. I think she's <laughs> great. She's a, a total badass. I just would love to. <laughs> she's a great. She's a, those Ellery Dawson books are great. Oh, that's great. Now, there's a lot uh, of the anxiety of writing a book in, in, in this yeah. in this novel. I mean, was writing about being scared of writing a way to not be so scared of writing for you? Yeah, it was like therapeutic. Is there? Yeah. Am I mirroring myself? My own? <laughs> yeah, I have to tell you. Um, so it was in 2015. I was teaching at the University of Maryland, and um, I had not published a book. And I wanted to, I wanted to write and publish. And I, I was teaching writing and not writing. And I, I decided, okay, if, if I'm going to achieve this dream, I, I need to stop teaching and start writing. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'm just going to take a leap and I'm going to step away and I'm going to get serious and write this book. And so four months into that first semester away, uh, my writing was going nowhere like I, I had started and stopped and started and stopped and I, it was t- terrible so what do you do when your writing is going bad you do other things like I was organizing my pantry cleaning out my garage <laughs> wandering the aisles of the container store <laughs> telling myself this was research uh-huh. and um you know and so it was it was not going bad so one day I was like this book, no at least nobody cares if I write this book I mean, nobody is waiting for me. And I imagine, what would it be like if the whole world was waiting for your book? Oh. Like if you had that kind of weight on your shoulders. And that's when I imagined this very sad sort of person. And that's when Sarah Grayson first came to mind. And so I feel for for, for writers and for people and for my students, you know, I, I was a, an English teacher who went into it for the reading more than a writer, more than mm. the writing. I, I struggled with writing for a long time. I didn't grow up wanting and dreaming of being a writer. It's something I sort of stumbled into myself. Well, you also, you include a, a ton of great quotes about writing from famous authors in here as, as uh, epigraphs to the chapters. I mean, do you, did you find those by sort of seeking out inspiration as, as you were going through these struggles or did these, uh, where did these quotes uh, come from for you? 
And absolutely, 100%, I was seeking them out for inspiration. I just was hungry for anything I get my hands on to help me be the best writer that I could be. And so uh, that's when I really began in earnest collecting quotes and learning everything I could from other writers. And I collected yeah. and kept my favorite ones and used them throughout the book to inspire me. And I hope they inspire others. Yeah, no, there's some great stuff in there. Well, I, it, congratulations on the book. And uh, I certainly hope that uh, the, the next one is not so torturous for you, Joni. <laughs> hey, once I, once I got out of the container store, it was great fun writing it. <laughs> Well, okay, we love it here on Writer Types when guests are excited to be on the show. And my next guest is so excited that he could not even wait for his book to be released. Welcome to Eli Craner. Uh, welcome to Writer Types, Eli. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Eric. Now, Eli, your novel, Don't Know Tough, has won the Peter Lovesey First Crime Novel Contest. So congratulations on that. That's quite the achievement. Yeah, thanks, man. It was a, a complete kind of out of right field. I'd, I'd struck out with agents left and right for years uh, with this novel. And then a writer buddy of mine, William Boyle, pointed me in the direction of Soho in this contest. And I looked up and, and somehow Peter loves the all the way across the pond, like this story about a Arkansas uh, roughneck kid uh, and a football team. That's uh, fine. I love hearing all those stories about how the, the agents and the the publishing industry gets it wrong so many times. I've uh, had a couple of those kind of things where no, I, I, nobody would take it. Nobody wanted it. And then boom, wins a contest. And now it's uh, the talk of the yeah, town. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, I think it, I really do. I mean, I put like a tweet out that said 200, over 200. And I think the exact number was like 211 rejections from agents. But I even, I had an agent for about a year and a half and he couldn't ever, he didn't really ever try to sell it, you know, wasn't ever sure where to place it with the football and the literary and the crime kind of all mixed together. So yeah. yeah, it's been really, really cool to see it finally grow some legs. Wow. Well, a part of winning this contest means that the book will come out with Soho Press. Uh, so when can we actually look forward to the release? Yeah, it'll be out in March of 2022. All right. Seems like a long way away, but it'll probably be here before you know it. Yeah, it, I think I got the word in like October of 2020. And it definitely seemed a long ways off then. But as we get farther and farther into the future, it's more and more stuff's adding up, you know, so it's like it's now I'm almost thinking, man, I wish we had a little more time. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Well, this is a story about a high school football player with a troubled home life and the coach who thinks he can help him. Uh, and I, so, so far it sounds very sweet and tender, uh, but then there's a murder. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I was a, I, I played football since I was in third grade. Uh, I played through high school, college, and then played one season overseas in Sweden and then came home and coached high school football for five years. I was an English literature major and always kind of wrote and and played with words. And then when I got out of coaching, two things coincided to get me out of coaching. And one was I became a head football coach here in Arkansas at the age of 26. We went one in 19 in my two seasons. And so I don't know if just getting beat that bad, you know, was enough for me to just say, oh, but the other thing was my daughter was born. And so I knew that the time, you know, invested into coaching, being a father was, was gonna take more than I could give. So I got out and then kind of turned all that crazy energy I had into 
uh, writing and turned it back to writing and trying to become a novelist. And this was a, the fourth manuscript I wrote, but it was the one that really played on, especially those two years as a head coach. And, and we, we were right in the foothills of the Ozarks. And, you know, I think like 90 something percent of the kids were on free and reduced lunches, you know, so a very wow. poverty stricken kind of at risk place. And this story um, just came from that, you know, not anybody in particular, but just that world. Yeah. Well, we have a unique chance uh, here since people cannot read the book yet. We're going to bring it to them with a little sample. So here's a little bit of you reading a section of the book. Now, does this need any setup for what we're about to hear? I don't, not necessarily. It's the, it's the, the main character and it's in first person. So yeah, I'll be reading through the voice of, of Billy Lowe. And he's a, a star running back for the Denton Pirates, but also a, a running back and, and a high school player who's dealing with some really heavy stuff at his, at his house. Still feel the burn on my neck. I told Coach it was a ringworm this morning when he picked me up, but it ain't. It's a cigarette, or at least what a lit cigarette do when it's stuck in your neck. Just stared at him when he did it. No way I was gonna let him see me hurt. No way. Bit a hole through the side of my cheek. Swallowed blood and just stared at him. Tasted blood all day. Tasted it while I sat in Miss Miller's class. Woke up in algebra tasting it. Drank milk from a cardboard box at lunch and still. I tasted it. But now at 8th period football, Coach Hardy got the boys lined up on either side of the 50, a crease in between, a small space for running and tackling, for pain. It's my favorite drill. I've just been standing back here watching the other boys go at it, the sound of they pads popping like sheet metal flapping in a storm. Who won't next? Holler Coach. I tongued the hole in my cheek, fingered the cigarette burn on my neck, and stepped into the crease. Coach had me the ball and smile. He know what kind of power I got. Senior year too, they got that sophomore linebacker lined up across from me, the one they hoping can make the starting team. He's thick in the neck and thighs, but he don't know. Coach blow his whistle. I can see him smiling as he stuck that hot tip in my neck. Smiling when he put little brother out in the dog pen. I gripped the ball tight. Ducked my head and run at sophomore linebacker. Hoping to kill him. When we hit that real lightning. Thunder explode across the field. The back of sophomore linebacker head the first thing to hit the ground arms out like Jesus on the cross. I step on his neck as I run past him. The other boys cheer. Coach blow his whistle and already the linebacker getting up. Like I ain't nothing. He's shaking his head, laughing, and standing again. Disrespecting me? This time I spear him with the top of my helmet. I dive and go head to head with him. There's a cracking sound, not thunder, not lightning, and damn sure not sheet metal. This is the sound of my heart breaking, the sound of violence pouring out. Coach blow his whistle like somebody drowning. 
Sophomore linebacker screamed because he don't know what's on him. This boy a poser. He don't know tough. Don't know nothing. Bet his mama woke him up this morning with goddamn milk and cookies. I try to bite his cheek off. But the face mask. The mouthpiece. I see only red. Then black. The cigarette. The dog pen. Well, Eli, it sounds fantastic. I'm already excited about it. So can't wait till uh, March of next year. And uh, I look forward to talking to you further about this book when uh, when it's actually released and people can get it in their hands. Awesome. Thanks so much, Eric. And finally, Stephen Mac Jones returns to Writer Types with his latest August snow mystery, Dead of Winter. This fantastic PI series set in Detroit is really a must-buy for PI fans and has been picked up for development by Hollywood for a TV series. Stephen and I began by chatting about what else, how we've been dealing with living in COVID times for more than a year. The, the pluses and minuses of working from home is that I just do, I do everything in my life now at this desk. <laughs> I feel like I never leave this tiny sure. little office. Sure. Has your lifestyle changed a lot during uh, COVID times, locking down and whatnot? You know, the only thing that's really changed is at one time I had two choices. Whenever my wife said, well, let's go out here or let's visit friends there. Um, I had the choice of saying, no, I don't want to. <laughs> There's a good movie on Netflix. <laughs> you know, that choice was taken away from me. Other than that, to tell you the truth, I'm feeling like artist in residence. That's what I <laughs> might as well call it. <laughs> yes, I agree. I think I think all across the nation, writers everywhere were like, stay in my house for a year? Yeah, no, that's fine. Right, right. <laughs> Well, you know, there was that pandemic malaise that covered me for a little bit, kind of felt like a French torch song singer. You know, <laughs> just the only thing missing was the beret and the cigarette. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've come out of it wiser and many pounds heavier. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you and me both. <laughs> well... August snow is back in the dead of winter. Now, I, I want to know, so, so your third book in the series so far, when you ended book two, did you have any idea yet where book three was headed? You know, I, that's a great question because I did two thirds of the way through the second book. I did have this vague idea of what book three would address, what the tone of it was. And I knew that it would be different. There was an obligation that I made with myself to up the stakes. Mm. Boy, was I surprised. <laughs> uh, when you raise the stakes for the characters that you've created, you tend to raise the stakes for yourself as a writer. And uh -huh. I hadn't made the connection. <laughs> <laughs> when you are developing those ideas, is, is that sort of tone that you speak of, is that sort of where these things start? I mean, sometimes, you know, you get an, an inciting incident or you come up with a great scene or like, oh, here's a great bad guy I thought of or something. Right. But are you thinking more in terms of just like the overall 
mood that you want to set? Uh, I'm thinking more in more global terms and keeping an eye on what's happening in the city as Detroit continues to emerge from its bankruptcy and the recreation of Detroit. Right. And a lot of the recreation is truly wonderful. There's an aspect of it, though, that is worrisome. That's where I come in as the pessimist. (laughs) While everybody's looking at the bright end of the spectrum, I'm kind of gazing at the dark end. What do you think, what is your unique perspective that you bring to portraying Detroit? I mean, you know, everyone can write about the same city and have a slightly different angle to it. Do you Mm -hmm. you think that you have, you you found your your vision of the city that you write about in in your own very unique terms? I think so. I hope so. Detroit is often thought of as stereotyped shorthand sparks flying on an automotive assembly line, uh, crushing poverty, black people versus white people, and vice versa. Even though this this city is just an extraordinary mix of cultures, uh, ethnicities, nationalities, I would like to think that I'm bringing a fresh perspective, a different view, hopefully a refreshing view. You know this as well as I do, Eric, that every city has its own personality. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you could take uh, August out of Detroit, plop him in the middle of L.A., and he wouldn't know what the hell was going on. (laughs) The same with Michael Conley's Bosch. Right. Take him out of L.A., put him in Chicago or Detroit, I'll bet you he wouldn't know what the hell was going on. Right. I hope I'm doing a good job of reflecting the personality of Detroit through August now. Well, and you mentioned the the mix of cultures there, and August himself is a mixed race, and it allows him to travel, I think, through these different neighborhoods and through these yeah. different cultures, even within the city. I mean, when you're walking the streets of Detroit, are, are there those clear dividing lines sometimes between, you know, a black neighborhood, Some, a Hispanic neighborhood? Sometimes there are those very distinct dividing lines. For example, I was originally from Lansing, Michigan, just 90 miles up the road. When I got here, People would say, I would ask for directions to someplace. More than not, people would say, that's that's on the east side. I don't know anything about the east side. <laughs> or, yeah, that, that's on the west side. I've never been to the west side. <laughs> and I used to think that was ridiculous. But after 40 years, I am one of those folks that says, I don't, I don't know anything about the east side. <laughs> I will tell you this much, I got lost on the east side, and I noticed a difference immediately. It was like in the space of 40 minutes, I had driven to Eastern Europe. (laughs) The signs for stores and restaurants were in Polish and Ukrainian. It It was amazing. But yeah, the point is, it's such a mix here. 
Uh, that's that's great. I mean, it's it's what makes the cities like ours uh, vibrant, and and it's and yeah. you know sometimes you have to go go get lost in those places to find the really great food. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Let's talk about the upcoming TV show based on August Snow. Sure. I don't know if you know, but I've, I've you know, I'm here in Hollywood. I've, I work in TV. So I was very excited to hear that uh, this is being developed uh, for TV with, I, to me, perfect casting, I think. So t- tell the yeah. folks about uh, what's coming up for this. The books have been acquired by ABC Imagine Studios, which is Ron Howard, and uh, Gaspin Media. The hope is to develop it into a TV series starring and executive produced by Keegan-Michael Key, who is just phenomenal and a Detroit boy. Oh, oh yeah. I think it's it's great casting. I, I, it's it's exciting to to hear what, you know when someone gets lifted up out of our uh, crime writing world and and brought into into Hollywood. But has has it been uh, a shock at all to have some of these meetings and to sort of get a taste of uh, of, of the world that I live in, where everyone everyone's glad handing you and smiling, and, and then you walk away feeling like was any of that sincere? <laughs> well, you know. I'm a Midwesterner, Eric, so my take is I am thrilled, but I still have to leave time to separate the recycling. (laughs) Well, hey, listen, if if you need an editor for the show, you know a guy. (laughs) Is that that what you do? Yes, that's that's what I... Five-time Emmy nominee, so... Oh, my goodness. I've, I've never won, of course. But, and, and it's funny, the last time I was at the Emmys, it's, it's, it's been great because, uh, you know, editing, I've, you know, I work in, like, nondescript office buildings. It's, it doesn't feel very Hollywood at all. But mm. getting, getting to go to the Emmys, like, I've, I've been able to take my wife that's and amazing. then my, my two daughters. When I took my older daughter, you know, they have this big party afterwards and there's a band mm. and it's, I mean, they put on a heck of a show. It's really, it's really great. We were up there and the band started playing and my daughter, I mean, we sort of walked up there and my daughter sort of looked around and nervously, like, thinking she might dance. And I was like, I was like, honey, go dance with that guy. He's really going for it. And she was like, I don't know. And it was Keegan Michael Key, who's out on the floor just cutting a rug. He was having a great time. I was like shoving my dog. I'm like, go dance with him. Go just so you can say you danced with him. <laughs> oh, he is. He's a marvel of a person of of a talent. All right. Well, Stephen, uh, congratulations on book three. Uh, we look forward to more of August right, Snow you. on the page and on the screen. Uh, so congratulations and uh, we'll we'll talk to you when the next one's out I really appreciate it Eric okay there you have it another great collection of writers for you I'll be back again soon with an all Scandinavian episode I've got four writers from Sweden and Iceland joining me to talk about that special sauce that makes Scandi Noir so popular so join me for that Subscribe to the show to get every episode delivered right to you. You can check out my books over at ericbeatner.com, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.